Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. But Tamsin and Dan read the paper. It's Sunday. We're back to Sunday. August 8th. It's Sunday, August 8th. We're right on the 2021. Sunday, as we should be doing it on Sunday, what turns out to be a nice day in Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful day. Except for the Met bands, but yeah. And the Mets playing? They played. They lost. Already? Yeah. Oh, my. They got it out of the way. The rest okay. of our evening is free. And yet you're bearing up. I have a strong constitution. I think it's my, you know, religious upbringing. That's what it is. Got um, it. Yeah. Got it. Um, so we've actually been out to the movie theater. Yes, we went to the movies. We went to um, Doylestown and we saw... The, the Green Knight. The Green Knight. We were we saw a good review in the New York Times. It didn't take much. And we, uh, you know, hustled to the theater in Doylestown, which is a very nice nonprofit theater, very comfortable surroundings, and we got to see a film. Uh, maybe you should talk a little bit about what that movie is, because it's not on everyone's radar. Well, I am not prepared to talk about the film. Did you? I don't even know who made it. Do you know who made it? Oh, man. All right, get out your phone. Um, I, it's starring Dev Patel. Yeah, tell the story. And it's, uh, it's, you know all about it. Well, I, I was interested in it because, you know, it's I'm, a, story, I'm it's a, a fan of the Arthurian legends. Okay, it's a story okay. of Sir Gawain. Uh, uh, Sir Gawain or Gawain, however you want to pronounce it, based on a 14th century poem yeah. by Anonymous. Right. And uh, actually there are like a zillion, uh, versions of the legends of uh, Gawain. Uh, I mean, there, he sometimes he's a good guy, sometimes he's a bad guy, sometimes he's virtuous, sometimes he's evil. Um, but uh, this poem basically zeroes in on the story in the movie, which is uh, that uh, Gawain, who is the nephew and in some legends best friend of King Arthur, um, agrees uh, to a challenge by the Green Knight, right. who bursts into the, you know, round table Christmas dinner and says uh, that he will, that he, I don't know how he exactly He will subject it. himself to any kind of attack. Anybody can hit him. Yes, but, but as long as that person comes to his own kingdom a year hence and, and allows him himself the same to, thing to receive him. the same blow. And and Sir Galway, I don't think I'm giving away too much to say the Dev Patel. All the other knights, all the knights of the this round is, table shake their heads. They're cowering because this is a very, well, very scary figure. But he's also a scary figure. He's a huge, ominous, dark shadow of a figure. Uh, supernatural. And uh, Dev Patel's character, Sir Galway, accepts the challenge, hacks at the Green Knight. And then the story is whether uh, well, and how... Well, off his head. Yes. And whether and how... Uh, Sir Gawain is actually going to follow through on, on the undertaking and come a year hence and put himself at the mercy of the Green Knight. And that's... The Green the Knight gallops off into the sunset. Yes, He picks head. up his head. And laughs. He picks up his head, gives a big laugh, and goes off. Yes, the head's laughing while it's being held. Um, so it is uh, mystical, this movie. It is... It is um, it's yes. not an action movie. No, and it's, and it's not a realistic movie entirely. But uh, it or is... Or momentarily. Yeah. Well, we can't go on about what it's not. We ought to say what it is. What it is, is... Uh, a, please, say what it is, because it, I'm not sure. Okay. It is an extremely ethereal, aesthetic, uh, compelling film. Uh, it is beautifully shot. Compelling? Yeah. Beautifully shot. The music it draws you in. 
Uh, it's you know reminiscent of music of that time. You're it is not me, reminiscent of music of that time. How do you? What time is it? It's not the Bee Gees, then. It's, it's uh It's, it's, it's a, a lot, lot of, of uh, whaling. Know, whaling. Yeah, yes, whaling. whaling. And uh, look, I found if you it, go for whaling, yeah, you'll be drawn in. That, look, I found myself thinking about this movie quite a bit afterward, which tells me something, which puts it in the plus column for me, even though it was a little hard to figure out what was going on. Um, and it's not the easiest uh, film to get into. Uh, and it's long. But I'm telling you, I thought it was worth the experience. And I, as I said to you, I think I figured out what's happening. Uh, what's happening is, and again, I don't think I'm giving too much away. I think the, the principal conflict here, and I'm, gonna, I'm theorizing because it's not even obvious from the film, is the duality between the Sir Gawain figure following the strict and narrow path of a, a monarch with a clear destiny, if you will. Uh, in terms of uh, doing what monarchs do, and giving himself, making himself a more vulnerable individual, putting himself out there and uh, experiencing life uh, in a more direct way. And uh, what he, the key to it is, again, not giving too much away. He is his his mother, who is has mystical powers, clearly by the terms of the film, gives him a belt that he ties around his waist which she says will protect him from harm and make him invulnerable. And it's there are certain scenes in the movie where he takes that off. And uh, under various circumstances, with various results. And I think a lot of what's going on in the movie is him making a choice when he's going to take that off, why he must take it off, why he must no, make himself no, vulnerable. No, 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 yes. He does not take it off of his own volition No, of course time. not, but he allows it to be taken oh, off Oh, please, allows. The, the guy was hogtied to a tree. That's once, that's once. You know, it? he couldn't get back. There's his... another time, is what we used to call a sex scene in which it's taken off. No, I, I will tell you in the original poem. Yeah. Um, that, that's true to the original poem. What I just said? That that the uh, that he gets that girdle, yeah. it's termed, um, from that particular woman. Yeah, not really from his mom. Okay, but from from a sorceress, if you will, and uh, because no, of, no it's, well, whatever. Magical. It's magical. It's magical. And I think that's the key to the whole film. And uh, again, I, I'm reluctant to say what happens in the film, but uh, it's just true to life. How so? It's true to life. You know, you're going to do what you got to do and then you're going to die. And he knows it. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, he happens to know what's going to happen in one year. Yeah. You know, and he's he's going to plod through well, and follow through. And that's the choice in life you're given. You, you know how it's going to end. It ends the same for everybody. So do you, you know, charge forth? And do what you can do, or you say, what does it matter? Or do you avoid your it destiny? All, and, and all ends up the same way. What, 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 what makes him uh, follow through and go to the Green Knight? He doesn't have to. Because he's a Green Knight. He's a dope. He doesn't know any better. <laughs> he's green in the sense that he's uh, inexperienced. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's the kind of... Duality. That's the, yeah. the dual... Gowan is not the Green Knight. The Green Knight is the big, sure. you know... Tree-like thing. But that's, that's again one of the conversations. But the the oh. title gives the opportunity. I, look, this for conversation some means something to me, but it's very hard for someone who didn't see the movie. I recommend the movie. I think it's interesting. You're gonna have to suspend a lot of disbelief, and you have to give yourself over <laughs> to the surroundings, and, and you give your and you, you really inhabit another universe 
for a couple hours. It's not the worst thing. I wouldn't go into it entirely sober. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I'll pass on that comment. Let me just say one final thing. Do not, whatever you do, watch it on television. If you're going to see it, go to the movie theater. It's going to look stupid. Yeah. It's just not going to play. Well, um, what was I going to say? I don't know. Uh, I oh, I will it. just say that uh, if you care about things like Rotten Tomatoes, yeah, it gets a, a good score from the critics and a very bad score from the audience. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Yeah, right. but the fun thing about it was we did go to a theater yeah. and we did um, uh, get to see coming attractions. Yeah, and it looks like there's some fun stuff coming there is, down the there pike is. and some stuff I wouldn't see in a million years. Which is yeah, but you may you know <laughs> you're going to see a net. <laughs> Uh, Annette actually gets better grades than uh, Green Knight. Yeah, even so. But I know it has puppets in it. Yeah, that's a tough <laughs> sell. I couldn't even get through the Times review of Annette, let alone the film. Uh, we'll have to see. But there were there were a couple other movies that looked kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm eager. I, I think uh, we'll be going every week. Every week. That's the plan. Okay? All right. We're members. Uh, all right, so the other thing we've been watching again, but it's closing down, and we ought to just uh, acknowledge it uh, for its, on its final throws, and that's the Olympics, since it's uh, on everyone's television set, including ours. Not as often as when we're in Block Island, because we're doing more stuff in a sense, but um, uh, it's there. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny because um, it feels like uh, every time we put it on, it's beach volleyball. Um, yes, every <laughs> every single person I have talked to, yeah, about have they been watching the Olympics? Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah, well, even my mother said that. Is that right? She said it seems to be always this beach volleyball. Yeah, well, that's the funny. Now, beach volleyball is a sport that's so boring to watch that they actually uh, uh, let me that they actually sat down the competitors one point and said the only way we can televise this is if you take off your clothes. I mean, that's clearly what happened. That's what's going on. As a marketing thing, they said these women have to be in their skivvies or we can't show it on TV. And the sad thing is that even with that, it's still boring. I can't think of any other sport where they have so many, um, where they televised so many of the um, eliminations, right? Yeah, it's not all the time. It's It's every single minute. Not all the time. You know? They think they've got a winner, and when in fact it's quite clear they have a loser. You know, it's funny. They're showing beach volleyball like crazy. Did you know that race walking has now been eliminated from the Olympics? That well, my mother watch. will not be sad about that. She no, said, she, she doesn't uh, like she that? Was not, no, she didn't like it. She said, and you know those guys walk for four hours? She said, that's ridiculous. Yeah, all right, just before <laughs> we go, your mother's 96. She's not in any demographic that I think anyone's really looking to appeal to, but uh, fine. She's on the air. Um, she watches all this stuff. It's funny. They took out race walking. Look, look I think the demographic is skewing towards 96? her end of the scale. Well, it might be. To be you know, they, they, if they, you watch the commercials. You know, they eliminated race walking, but they kept um, rhythmic gymnastics. <laughs> <laughs> it's still in. You know, look, the, the um, there was an article about the, the ratings have been disappointing. And we don't have the final ratings yet because it's not over. It's technically not over until today. But the ratings have gotten so far are sufficiently weak or off what they had hoped for. When you talk about ratings, yeah, are you just talking about what appears on the network? No, no, no. I'm talking about the more sophisticated ones where they try to track streaming. It takes you into a oh, complicated really? conversation. Okay. But there's no. I can't give you one number because it's, okay. it's a, this right. whole thing. But it's enough that here's what here's what matters. Here's what tells you. 
they're offering the advertisers free time to as a bonus as a makeup because Ooh, they're not getting nobody watched not nobody but because it's because they got lesser viewership than they would have hoped that well, tells you I what you need to, to know you. i you know it seems like a silly time of year to have a show like this cuz a lot of people are at the beach or the swimming pool or yeah. even just in their backyard chilly i don't think that's it. look you don't you don't need the olympics look there's an article there's all kind of speculation about why and it's you know it starts with the pandemic and then the publicity about maybe Japan shouldn't be doing this. Um, and, you know, no, you all know. kinds of things about the disappointing performance by some uh, U.S. athletic teams. They have all kinds of theories. To me, the, the one thing that really resonated with me, you know, I think the biggest problem that they have with the Olympics is the time difference. And it, it's that mundane. The fact of the matter oh. is, because of this 12 or 13 hour time difference, which I still don't understand, uh, you're never watching any, you're rarely watching anything live. Or you often don't know whether you're right, watching something right. live. And very often you get the news about the critical event 10 hours before it's on right. television. So what's the point of watching? Right. I think that's the biggest problem. I think, I, you know, and they didn't have that problem in Rio. You know, because Rio is pretty much the same time or an hour or two mm-hmm. difference. So even though that's an old-fashioned issue, a uh, very mundane issue, I think that's their biggest problem. I tell you one thing. When you do watch a race, uh, a track race, live, and they, they do work it out that you can do that once in a while, and we have had that opportunity, you see all kinds of very fast times and all kinds of records being broken left and right. And it turns out there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there are a lot of reasons, but uh, a main reason is the track itself. The track, Ooh. they say, feels like a trampoline, according to some of the competitors. And I did catch an article uh, about the company that makes the track. Uh, it's a company called Mondo, led by a fellow named Andrea Valore, or not led so much as he's the guy who did the installation in Tokyo. And it is a track that was made specifically for Tokyo. It's the first track of this type. They tested all kinds of rubbers. They used all these granules. They used all these mixes. They had uh, runners try the different uh, mixes and the different rubbers. And they picked this one, and they said it's amazingly fast. It feels like a trampoline. So is that good or bad? Well, it's good. It gives you a lot of very fast times. And uh, so it makes it more exciting in, in that way. Uh, but the, then you have to have an asterisk? No. You don't have an asterisk. You know, it turns out that there's, there's a lot of controversy attached to shoes. And yeah. there's even been in this Olympics, there's some complaining about the guy next to me had the, had the shoes that made him go faster. Uh, and that becomes controversial and difficult. Mm-hmm. But if even though there are rules for the track, they don't. It never becomes terribly controversial because everybody's got the same footing on the track. So it's never a matter of one guy saying the U.S. competitors has an unfair advantage because of this track. They're all on the same track. So even if there's arguably uh, a violation of the track as compared to the normal standards, no one gets too excited about it. Mm-hmm. And that's what you've got here. And you've got these. These times, we've seen races, you know, I, I remember the 400-meter four, hurdles, the women's race. Uh, the woman who won the race uh, broke the world record, her own, by half a second. Half mm-hmm. a second was a lot. The woman came a second also broke the world record. Not the mm-hmm. Olympic record, the world record. Um, you know, so, and, and everyone's coming in with a personal best in all these races. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's not the only race, the one I just described, where... People are breaking the world record and coming in second or third. So, um, you know, it does make it exciting 
That's for sure. It just they, they so won't have... from now on, when there are big uh, races, they'll use this people track. People install that. Install that if uh, they can. I mean, they not not everybody has the money to put in a, a new track, but uh, yeah, or they just won't break any world records. Um, there was one one particular athlete caught my eye, and that's a fellow who's a Swedish uh, pole vaulter. Um, well, the point is, he's not a Swedish vaulter. Who's not a Swedish pole vaulter? He's an American pole vaulter. He's an American pole vaulter representing Sweden, Louisiana. His name is Mondo Duplantis. He lives in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, but his mother is Swedish. And this guy has been a pole vaulting prodigy. He's been vaulting since he was in grammar school, apparently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's always considered a great prodigy. And he was approached by the Swedish authorities, sounds like him, he was in high school, saying, you uh, you know, the U.S. regime's a headache. You know, you can compete for Sweden because of your your mother, and uh, that might be the best way for you to go. And he was persuaded to do that because he didn't have to worry about qualifying. He didn't have to do certain meets that he would have to do if he was an American. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, is he accepted uh, in Sweden? And the answer is uh, yes. Yes, he is because he's, well, they say in the Times, he, Duplantis has emerged as one of Sweden's most beloved athletes endearing himself to a once skeptical, excuse me, skeptical public by one speaking Swedish in interviews, two driving Swedish cars, three buying a place to live in Sweden during the summer, and four dating a Swedish model, Desiree Englander. So uh, he's uh, apparently... Yes, he's pretty Swedish. He's pretty Swedish. Uh, and... Uh, they say in the article that uh, it gets a lot of attention in Sweden, and if he wins the gold medal, uh, he's going to be a super Swede. That's what they say here in the article. Well, it turned out yesterday he did win the gold medal. So there you go. Mondo Duplantis has got it made in Sweden. Yeah, probably more because of the supermodel than the gold medal. Well, I don't, I don't want to speculate that. And the fancy Swedish car. Yeah. He drives a Polestar. Mm-hmm. We talked about a Polestar in a previous episode, if you may remember, but maybe not. Uh, all right. So let's, uh, from the uh, sublime to the ridiculous, uh, you were going to talk about mascots. No, I thought we were going to talk about mascots. All right. We'll talk about it. I'm in. So there's a, a fun article in the New York Times Magazine section, Character Study by Max Rubin. And uh, it's about, uh, I guess, the... Uh, Dave Raymond. Dave Raymond, yes. Who is uh, the originator. How, how you put, well, the originator or the best friend yeah. of the <laughs> Philly Fanatic. That's right, the best friend. Because, you know, it's not like the Philly Fanatic doesn't exist. It's not like he has to be uh, inhabited by another person to move around. He's, he's a Philly Fanatic. But his well, best friend helps him be the Philly Fanatic. Right. Well, the yeah, yeah. Okay, so what do you want to say about it? Well, there's a lot of things to say about it. First of all, the, what the article's about. It's funny that I, I, I didn't really realize that these mascots didn't always exist. 
Oh, I, oh, and, I, I knew that. Yeah. And the article goes through the story of how. Yeah, well, know, they're, they're undignified. They, they yeah. shouldn't have existed. But they, anyway, they shouldn't have existed. The first one, of course. It's not like it's a Mr. Met. Well, I, first thing I'm reading the article, I'm saying, how about the San Diego chicken? And they do manage to tell the story of the San Diego chicken, which was the first mascot. You remember that, do you know? No, I don't remember okay. anything about that. It's but, ten, ten um, long you know, name, so. Yeah. so uh, the chicken is a huge success, and it's actually, so much so the team is pretty bad, I guess. And the the presence of the chicken actually drives up uh, doubles, interest, uh, doubles the attendance. attendance. Yeah, uh, and so the Phillies say we got to get some of it's this. It's a guy in a chicken suit, and they're not even paying him; they're giving him free passes to the game. Right, and it, it doubles was his the idea, and it's his idea. Right. So uh, what happens is that the uh, Phillies get the idea of doing this, and uh, they actually work with um, Jim Henson's folks, the Muppets. Right, to create the, to create the uh, character. The and you, you, when you look at it, you look him up at Mike, right? Right. And uh, as it happens, this fellow Dave Raymond, who's a college student then, is well, they, work, you know, working some, as an intern. Well, they're working with Henson's people about uh, the um, costume. Yeah. And they say, and just, all right, the next thing we just need is the person who's going to wear it. Yeah. And the Phillies go, oh, 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 oh what, what are we going to do? And they have an intern. Best friend. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Uh, who happens to be Tubby Raymond's son, Dave. Yeah. Uh, Tubby got him the job. And uh, Tubby was the football coach. Yeah, yeah let's talk about of, that for a second. Uh, of, of the University of Delaware. Delaware for a long, long time. 33 30, years. Yeah. Okay. So, so I talked to my brother, Michael, who went to the University of Delaware and uh, was there at the same time as Dave Raymond. And he confirmed, but we all know that uh, Tubby Raymond was a figure in college athletics, you know. Uh, so he was right up there with, with your big-time coaches, you know, your Dean Smith, your your, your legend-type coaches. Uh, Joe Paterno, to be closer to the mark, perhaps. And in any event, uh, he was a big deal. Um, Dave Raymond's his son is at the University of Delaware. According to Michael, Dave Raymond was notorious at the University of Delaware. Yeah. He says there were two people when he was in college who were notorious during the four years. Mm-hmm. One was Dave Raymond. The other was George Thorogood. Now, George Thorogood, of course, the rock band performers of George Thorogood and the Destroyers didn't go to Delaware, but he was a townie, as Michael said. Oh, okay. And he played often at Delaware. And he was a figure. But the other figure was Dave Raymond. Why? Because he was kind of a, an... Um, very brash, some might even say annoying guy who made well, he, himself known around campus. In the article, he describes himself as the wise ass. Wise ass doesn't begin to describe it. Michael, uh, and he said the teachers were constantly sending home notes saying Dave talks too much. Or yeah. Dave, you know. Well, that's in high school. When he was in college, Yeah. Uh, Michael said he used to hang out. He went to the University of Delaware? Yeah. He, that's where Michael knew him. And so he used to hang out at the field house, right? And he was on the football team. They don't mention that in the article. Playing mm-hmm. for his father. And he would give the guys in the other sports that use the field house, like Michael's playing tennis, a terribly hard time. And they would say to each other, who is this jerk? Who is this guy? Uh-huh. You know? And he was an impossible guy. Mm-hmm. So Michael was friends with guys on the football team. He says, yeah, he's, uh, uh, I don't know what they said, wise ass or something else. But it was mm-hmm. pretty negative. The deal with him, he played two years on the football team, according to Michael. And he got beat up because the guys on the defense hated him. So whenever they ran drills, they zeroed in and knocked the tar out of him. He had to get off the football team. So he was a, a so difficult guy. So anyway, yeah. he's fearless. 
Yes. Okay. And uh, so he has this internship, yeah. and uh, they decide to give him a shot as yeah. the character, and he turns out to be the perfect guy. Yeah, he's great. Um, and he creates this incredible um, character, and he was also especially well suited for it because oh, yeah, the I Philly know. fanatic does not speak. Right. All right. Like the Disney characters. Right. Okay. Right. And so, actually, his mother is deaf. Right. And so, <laughs> apparently, to uh, avoid hearing him sometimes, she would turn down her hearing aid. Yeah. And he got very accustomed to, you know, emphatic gesticulations. Yes, he was good at speaking with his hands That was his reputation. He was good and, at his emphatic uh, gesticulations. And so, and that would be great for this character. Right. So, anyway, um, you know, the uh, fanatic has tremendous... Success and he helps, and Raymond has a career helping originate other characters. Yeah, and one thing that struck me as interesting the way they describe the success of the mascot is um, that somehow it is a bridge between the fan and the player, the fan and the fans yeah, and the that players. Yeah. That uh, you know, he sort of that you know, he, he brings them together, he's he's kind of on their side when he's being when he is like uh, standing on the dugout and mocking the opposing team etc i mean he's uh, kind of in there with the fans yeah. kind of thing representing right. them in a way yeah. or when he's doing goofy things to the umpire etc he's acting out some fan impulses you right. know um so that uh, you know they become very attached to him right. in a way uh that uh is quite successful. So the article tells a bit about um, Raymond's uh, success. He now has a mascot boot camp. Yeah. You know, he's he's retired from performing, but he does, um, you know, he, he has written down, I guess he's written a book yeah. about uh, mascots and he, he you know, he... He um, kind of... Uh, but he helps put them together. And they, they, they tell the story about the Philadelphia Flyers needing a mascot and him, him inventing that, creating yeah, that mascot. Yeah, the Flyers were, you know, one of the holdouts right. in terms of uh, not having a mascot. But it didn't that, seem appropriate because, of, you know, the kind of uh, personality of the Flyers themselves. But, but, but that's a very successful mascot. When, Gritty. Uh, Gritty is a big success. It was a huge success. And uh, Raymond himself said, you know, when we first present this character, uh, it's going to get a lot of complaints. Well, I, I can tell you there's another reason why. The, the, the mascot, as the article tells, and, and even follows the mascot a little bit, or describes the mascot walking around the Philadelphia Stadium, the people who seem to react strongly to the mascot are young women and kids. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm not saying men don't, but it's young women and kids. That's what they say. Okay. You don't have that at the hockey game so much. The yeah. hockey game crowd is a more grizzled uh, veteran crowd. but And yet, they have embraced Gritty. So there you have it. But they love him. But, yeah. he, you know, but he had a rough go. He started out slow. And, uh, you know, he um, charmed yeah. the uh, grizzled fans. I guess so. of the Philadelphia well, Flyers. Well, I think if you're the Flyers, but anyway, fans, it was interesting to hear yeah. how um, this wise ass, yeah. you know, turns a negative into a positive. Yeah. You know, uh, really uh, capitalizes on his strengths, which yeah. probably no one else in the world viewed as, as strengths. His personality, um, yeah. and uh, it's a fun article to read. Yeah. So that's in the New York Times Magazine. Okay. So you had uh, the automation article. 
know, I think every few weeks we have another, you know, food automation. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because we've had uh, a long time ago the thing about buying salads out of a machine. Oh, and, buying right? pizza. And then we had pizza being made yeah, fresh the dish, the dish, in the machine. The is a okay. fry cook, a it's, clear, fry cook. it's clear that robots are going to have to get involved because. How many articles have you read? How many news stories have I seen on TV saying um, restaurants cannot get workers? Yeah. They cannot get workers. And um, so that that being so, you're going to see a lot mm-hmm. more resorting to uh, technology well, to help help get that food well, first out First of all, there. let's just say what this is. And this is a robot fry cook. Yeah, for um, White Castle. Yeah. Okay, so it's, um, you know... Not fine dining, but uh, they um, they have a robot and uh, Flippy, uh, uh, who um, works twenty three hours a day, mm-hmm. has operated almost continuously for the past year at the fry station. Okay, so Flippy does um, the fries, does onion rings, and uh, something else. Now. Um, it, uh, it has a bunch of benefits, and uh, they point out that uh, it's not like it's that much cheaper uh, than the 17-year-old, you know, mm-hmm. who could be working the line, except that unlike the 17-year-old, Flippy always shows up for work. Right. Okay. Does not call in sick. Um, so, but you're seeing more and more uh, of these robots by various companies. Um including uh, um, one, the Kitchen Robotics in uh, Tel Aviv, and uh, that can um, make anything as long as it fits in a bowl. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's hard to make it. It's hard to deal with food. Robots can do a lot of things, mm-hmm. you know, picking up boxes, well, that's what I was putting them places. They, they can... But the problem is, food has so many, you know, variations in right. terms of texture, you know, um, manipulation, blah, 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 uh, that uh, it's hard to get a machine that can handle all of that. But um, I was surprised they could do this. I mean, I, I don't know. And I, and I do think... I, mean, I don't know. Fry, fries doesn't seem that hard to me. Okay. Because you're, you're dipping it in the oil. Something's got to pick it up after a certain number of minutes and put it in the next thing and then, okay. you know, shake it off and et cetera and so So it's forth. not making burgers, you're telling me. It's not making burgers yet. Okay. Well, well look, I, I know you said you make the point that they make, which is, you know, shows up for work. And that's the big thing. But uh, I can't help but think that it's the raising of the minimum wage makes it easier to justify this kind of expenditure. And they're just saying, right. you know, uh, and which is always the thing with the minimum wage. Does it eliminate jobs? And yeah. uh, this will eliminate jobs. Well, they also point out as time has gone on and, uh, you know, the basic technology of operating a kitchen has improved Mm -hmm. over time, especially in fast food restaurants. The menu has increased and and become more diverse. Oh, really? Right. So uh, in 1921, uh, they had uh, four items on the menu, basically, in a White Castle-type place. Hamburgers, Coca-Cola, coffee, apple pie. And now as things are getting more uh, complex, people want more variety. Uh, the um, kitchen of the future has to find a way to supply that. But, but mainly, I mean, we're, as I said, it, there's a light motif of the shortage of labor uh, 
for these kind of jobs that is going to eliminate these jobs. There's an article in the New York Times during the week about um, restaurants, how we were all imagining that the restaurants were going to open back up yeah, and so everything would be fabulous. Work, and everything is not fabulous. Yeah. They don't have the food. They don't have the supplies. And they don't have the workers. So a lot of places that need to open to full capacity cannot. They're doing six days instead of seven days. They're they're not serving lunch anymore, et cetera, because they cannot get people. We we saw a little of that. Block Island, yeah. The really fun thing about um, the Times articles is often the comments. Oh, I don't see yeah, that. Yeah, you got to click on the comments on the online version because yeah. I tell you, New York, whoever reads the New York Times, they are the crankiest people in the universe. It's yeah. really, Boy, it's sad. really, most of them said, well, you know, who needs restaurants? You know, you know, a couple of them were saying things like, uh, I learned, my wife and I learned during the, the pandemic that we could be much happier eating at home. How, how do you know what this person's voice sounds like? That's because like, it's that kind of guy. Yeah, you know, that kind of cranky it's old guy. Uncanny. You know, um, but uh, it really, it was a dismal prospect, the things people were offering. And some people were saying, well, what's the problem? Just pay people more. Yeah. You know, and other well, people yeah. are saying, is that how you solve every problem no, in your you business? You, you just say pay? Well, you know, the Times has plenty of articles that say you just pay people more and charge people more for meals and everyone will be happy with that. And I think what you've learned from looking at the comments is that that's not the case. But that's not the case. Also, you, I, we've also seen a fair amount of employers saying, I raised wages. People yeah. are still yeah. not showing what up. What they need is a... They uh, don't want to make fries. Robot fry cook. I mean, that's what they need. Uh, so... They're having the Hall of Fame inductions for the NFL. And what struck me is this one fellow, uh, this year's Hall of Fame inductions, include uh, Bill Nunn, who I never heard of. Uh, But Bill Nunn is being inducted. He was a great uh, scout. Uh, That's how he uh, uh, made his name for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, He became the uh, first black scout and front office executive in the NFL when he was hired by Pittsburgh in 1967 to help recruit players from historically black colleges and universities. So you say, well, that's, you know, how exciting is that? This is how exciting it is. They have a list of the players that he recruited from HBCUs, and it's an incredible list. They don't have, I won't name everybody, but they include Joe Green, Donnie Schell, John Stallworth, Elsie Greenwood, and Mel Blount. Well, these guys were superstars, superstars. And the Steelers were far and away the best team in the 70s because of, because of these guys, not because of Terry Bradshaw. I mean, Terry Bradshaw was very good, mm-hmm. but uh, who went to LSU, by the way. But these guys uh, were superstars. And what they say in the article is that there was a pipeline that the Steelers enjoyed that other teams didn't. Because he was a former sports writer, he knew these schools, he knew the people there, he would visit them, he would get the information from the coaches, and he would bring these players there who were under the radar. So however they were doing in the normal draft and competing with other teams, the Steelers were, in addition to that, plucking these guys sometimes, I mean, Joe Green was a first-round draft choice, but these others, not necessarily, getting them in later rounds and stocking the team with these potential superstars. So it's no accident that that team became the dynasty of the 1970s. So I was uh, saying, oh, well, that's how they did it. I mean, that's legitimate, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's a very interesting story. They do say later on in the story 
that what's happened, strangely, is that uh, other teams caught up with that, and they started recruiting uh, at HBCUs, and the Steelers no longer had an advantage. Um, and yet now they find that very few HBCU players make it or are drafted in the NFL. I think in the last draft they say there was nobody drafted from an HBCU, and they're now they went to the commissioner's office, and there's someone who's an executive of the commissioner's office saying we got to do something about that. You know that's not right. This is part of our diversity initiative. The NFL should make sure that its front office recruit from the HBCUs, saying that you know we have a problem. We're going to get rid of it. Well, they don't have a problem. The reason this is me, not the article. The reason that they're not drafting the HBCUs is that the players I mentioned before, the John Stallworths, the Mel Blancs, who went to the HBCUs are, are before, recruited to the other. They're now schools. going to the University of Michigan. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's not that's the NFL that caught on to this, but the colleges caught on to this. So those, so those are undiscovered talents are no longer undiscovered talents. They're playing in the Big Ten, uh, and that's why they're getting recruited. So it's a problem that's really not a problem. But in any event. Um, that, this, to me, was uh, illuminating mm-hmm. because you say to yourself, what kind of geniuses do they have, the Pittsburgh Steelers? Yeah, they had this guy, Bill Nunn. That's what they had. So uh, that's, that's, that's the way it works sometimes. Interesting. Um, speaking of geniuses. Speaking of geniuses. Uh, there is uh, a um, review in the New York Times uh, book review section, The Art of Making Art by Alan Cumming. Who's a performer? Right. We love Alan Cumming. I love yeah. Alan Cumming. I mean, he can be odd well, sometimes, well, he's, he does, but there's no question he really embodies uh, his characters. Well, he's a great talent. Yeah. He, he does the. You see him on television with Masterpiece Theater. Yeah. And, you know, murder, masterpiece, masterpiece. No, but, don't do it. Don't. But, sorry. Uh, uh, but but he was when he does cabaret, when you do hear a Scottish accent, and, and, it's yeah. quite wonderful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's a great performer. Yeah, famous for cabaret, probably in most people's. Minds. Anyway, he was reviewing a new book by James Lapine, Putting It Together, How Stephen Sondheim and I Created Sunday in the Park with George. Yeah. So that it sounds like a fun book. It, it, the review is uh, in the format of um, Alan Cumming is saying he really uh, sees the world divided into scientists and artists. And you're either one or the other. And he really sees Sondheim as a scientist. Um, more, you know, uh, precise, uh, thinking in straight lines, uh, comfortable, uh, with, uh, order and rationality as opposed to James Lapine, who he sees the, the artist, you know, dealing with curvy lines and laissez-faire, he describes it, uh, abstract thinking. But anyway, it, it, uh, it sounds like it's, uh, an interesting book detailing, how um, this whole musical comes about. That yeah. there, you know, uh, Sondheim is kind of reeling after the um, uh, failure of uh, Merrily We Roll Along, right. which is still, in my mind, one of the great musicals. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. I, I don't get it. Um, and, uh, you know, um, he's been brainstorming with Lapine and uh, you know nothing is quite happening, uh, and until uh, they start riffing on some postcard of uh, Surat's Grand Jatte, afternoon at the Grand Jatte, um, 
uh, together, and boom, the musical happens. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I didn't buy into the, the artist uh, uh, scientist duality. I didn't quite get it. I mean, look, I think Sondheim is extremely precise. He does say he's an extremely precise writer, which he is. And you know, I, I you looked at and I've read those Sondheim books about his own plays, and he's well, very he, precise. He's very precise, but he was also crafted yeah. from the get-go to do all of this. Yeah, okay. I mean, he's been—he was aiming for this. He grew up, you know, in the shadow of Oscar Hammerstein, I, I'm sure. and yeah. then he's studying music and uh, writing music and musical styles, right. etc. In college, I mean, it's—and he has a tremendous um, sort of—I don't know education from all points to be right. able to do this and you know Lapine is just kind of you know falling into yeah he doesn't have the background Sondheim he doesn't have the reputation Sondheim has but he's, he's different look I, I've heard and you were there with me when we saw Sondheim and I, uh, in person and he either said it then or I read it otherwise to him the hardest thing is playwriting at least he says he could never be a playwright this is why he always has a collaborator Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, being Lapine. In some cases, it's Jerome Weidman, but it's always someone else. And uh, he takes on challenging themes. It's not like he's just putting music onto established stories. You know, it's funny. There's an article here about uh, people putting together parody musicals on, of TV sitcoms like Friends in the Office. And, uh, you know, they're getting a little bit of a following and people have fun with it. And it's, they call it a gateway to really real musicals. That's not what Sondheim is doing. Sondheim is taking these elusive themes, uh, in this case, a painting, right? In uh, in the case of company, a bunch of sketches. It's not even Well, a, he's not talking about the painting. He's, talking, he's always talking yeah. about life. He's always talking I about understand. relationships it's, That's how wide people. open-ended okay. it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I thought it was an interesting article, although it doesn't really, he doesn't title it together, but it's a book review. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, all right. Anyway, I'm saying it might be an interesting book. It to might read be an interesting to, book. Yeah. To, I mean, uh, because yeah. I'm looking at it and they say, you know, the, the first act was together, but they didn't even have the second act really together. And they were doing the previews. And Cummings sticks in a little remark like he doesn't think they ever got the second act together. It's kind yeah. of a subtle remark. And I'm saying to myself, I feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, I understand the first act. And the second act is like they scribble that down on a piece of paper. Yeah, but now. you know, we say that about, I guess, a lot of eight point five out of ten. Yeah, okay, I agree. Out of Listen, every you know what makes play that show. See. I'll say this too: the music makes that. Yeah, uh, and that's on that. So no, it is interesting. I do think coming is interesting. It was kind of an inter- interesting style that he wrote that in. It's kind of. Uh, it's like he had the thesaurus yeah, right next Alan to him. Alan Cumming is an interesting guy. Uh, so anyways, that's Putting It Together yeah. by James Lapine. And so right. if you're interested in how the sausage is made yes. for musicals. You also mentioned that um, uh, those musicals that are based on old TV shows. Yeah. Uh, that uh, there's a bunch of them. Like one that parodies The Office, one right. that parodies Friends, I guess. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, Stranger Things. Yes, they're playing at the Theater Center on West 50th Street. Uh, and I mean, I'm ill-equipped. I can't go to any of those because those are not TV shows that uh, I, think I know well enough to get the jokes. I think you'd pick it up. Well, it's, it's a little bit like Forbidden Broadway, but those are obviously parodies of, yeah. of musicals themselves. Uh, but it's funny. You can see where it could be fun, and it, you, you can see where it's easy 
to do. I mean, you have sort of an established property. People are interested in the property because they know the show, they know the author, whatever. You don't pay copyright on that because it's a parody. So they don't need licensing to do that. Yeah, only a lawyer would uh, bring that up. That's the most important and, thing. Uh, but, but here's the thing. It might be more fun to see a show like that yeah. than the big, high-powered productions sure. that take 20 years to put together right. and, you know, $40 million or whatever. It so, might be. Well, I think it could be fun. You know, it's more like uh, going to the um, law school review. Yes, that's exactly right. Which can be a lot of fun. It can be a lot of fun. So, you know, it depends on the performance. All, All right. right. So, uh, there we go. We've yeah. done it again. The grandchildren are calling. Yeah, the grandchild is calling. Hazi, Hazi. I don't know what they're doing to that child. I, I don't think They probably don't feed him enough. <laughs> I don't think that's it. I think Which is not really possible. He eats about every 10 minutes. I but, think, you know. You know I mean, what it is? He wants what? his grandmother. When his grandmother's that in the house. That must be it. He wants his grandmother. That's exactly it. Hazi right. wants what Hazi wants. That's right. I'm on the way, Haz. All okay. right. So this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Uh With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. We'll be back again next week. Thanks. <laughs>